This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is An Event, Perhaps, a biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon. For some, he is the originator of a relativist philosophy responsible for the contemporary crisis of truth. For the far right, he is one of the architects of cultural Marxism. To his academic critics, he reduced French philosophy to little more than an object of ridicule. For his fans, he is an intellectual rock star who ranged across literature, politics, and linguistics. In an event, perhaps, Peter Salmon presents this misunderstood and misappropriated figure as a deeply humane and urgent thinker for our times. An event, perhaps, a biography of Jacques Derrida, by Peter Salmon, out now from Verso Books. I am taking a week off to play catch-up. And so I'm posting an early dig episode that people keep returning to time and again. My interview with Barbara and Karen Fields, the authors of Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life. Thank you as always for listening, and I'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find our entire archive organized by topic and by guest at thedigradio.com. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. And lastly, please do take a quick minute. Think of a friend who you think would like this podcast, then hit them up and suggest that they take a listen. Imagine there are people all over the place who could be dig listeners, but who have never even heard of the podcast. A total tragedy. Okay, I do hate listening to myself from three years back, but... Here we go. Dig episode 75 from December 13th, 2017. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This year, Gallup reported findings from a poll headlined... Americans' worries about race relations at record high. The framework of race relations has long troubled me because it implies that the problems with race in America are based in some unfortunate interpersonal communications-based lack of understanding rather than in racism and the capitalist order that racism helps maintain. Racecraft, the soul of inequality in American life, opened my eyes to the fact that this race relations framework should be disturbing on an even more basic level. Race relations, after all, presumes that there are distinct entities called races, white, black, Asian, native, and maybe even Hispanic. The idea of race, racecraft shows, is rooted in the practice of racism and the eugenicist bio-racist notion that something, whether it be blood or genes, has created a set of scientifically distinct groupings of people. My guests today are the authors of this seminal book, 
The Brilliant Sister duo, comprised of historian Barbara Fields and sociologist Karen Fields, they make a persuasive case that our continuing commitment to the very idea of race helps perpetuate and strengthen racism. It also, of course, bolsters capitalism by placing a huge obstacle in the way of working people realizing their common interest in coming together to fight their bosses. Briefly, before we get started, we are on our way to meeting our goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com for 2017. When we started this podcast about a year ago, we had no clue whether it would be a financially viable endeavor. Thanks to your support, it is on track to being just that. Once it is just that, we'd also like to make some big investments in improving guest audio quality. So if you haven't done so yet, please take a moment and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here is the show. Barbara and Karen Fields, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I want to start by asking you to lay out the central argument of your book in some detail. I'm going to take a stab at it first, a nutshell stab at it, and see if I get it right. Racecraft, doing its work in the shadows, naturalizes and reifies the objective, visible existence of race. And race is a prerequisite for racism, but it's the action or practice of racism that is really the motor and at the historical roots of race. Do I have that close to right? There are some problems there, and one of them is your statement that race is a prerequisite for racism. Uh, It's the other way around. Racism being an action, it is uh, acting on a double standard, based on ascribed or putative ancestry. Racism, in other words, it's not an attitude, it's not bigotry or prejudice, it is an act. And it is the repetition of the acts of racism that makes race look like a real entity. And that is what has happened in American history. The term racecraft, which is is your coinage, describes the that overall relationship between racism and race? Let me try this one. Uh, racecraft encompasses the fact that the, the race that's pictured by the subjects as real, in fact, is not, is made to be real and, and envisioned collectively as something real. And so people begin to think, I have a racial identity. I am a, a race, um, a black person or a white person. I am, um, I have certain characteristics. I'm smart. I deserve to be on the bottom and so on. These things are, are programmed in to people through the activity of doing, of that first thing, acts that, um, based on, are sensibly based on heritage that put somebody in, in his or her place. 
Yeah, so the way I sometimes explain this to my students is that uh, if if you see a sideshow, my students have never seen a carnival sideshow, so I have to explain what that is. <laughs> but then I tell them that there uh, used to be, as part of carnival sideshows, an act where a magician would cut a woman in two, and it was all done with mirrors and so on. Um, but it, it looked real, and the audience was spellbound by it. Uh, but at the end of the show, the lady would come back on stage along with the magician so that everybody could see that the thing was a conjuring trick. What I tell my students is that racecraft is a conjuring trick that doesn't need a conjurer on stage because the, the onlookers' minds are also conjuring the spectacle for them. And racecraft uh, doesn't end with the performer and the illusion appearing on the stage in their in their rightful being racecraft is a permanent illusion so and it can be a death dealing illusion one of the uh, examples or groups of examples that we keep coming back to in racecraft is that of the police officer an afro-american police officer or in a few instances a Latino police officer who is mistaken for a criminal by fellow police officers uh, and that is uh, an act of it, it is a consequence of racecraft that can end with someone's death because what happens is that a police officer who knows himself to be a police officer appears to be a black man to another police officer who then uh, carries out an execution. And then one of the way that is that sort of incident is popularly understood is that the person is killed because of his skin color. And you both write about how that transfers the action of, of racism from the perpetrator to the to its object or victim. Yes, I think that's one of our main points, that, that uh, race transforms the act of a perpetrator into a characteristic of the target. Race transforms someone else's, one person's action into another person's being. And we see this happening every day, and uh, people who are the targets participate in it as well because they can't help it. It's not uh, a, a voluntary action. It is part of, of what we're engulfed in because we live in the kind of society where uh, racist action is our reality. I would like to tag on to that, that people experience it, may experience it in a way that they take ownership of it. They believe that they are what racecraft makes them. Race is an identification and um, a, a, an attaching of a name, label, a name or a description to somebody. It's not identity, the person, him or herself. But it quickly has that transmogrification in saying, in thinking about my identity as a black woman. When I have an identity that's not as a black woman, <laughs> that says Karen Fields. And that, I think, comes first. Yeah, and you you see it you see it clearly in uh, an episode that before probably most of your listening audience was born, 
but uh, an immigrant from Guinea in New York City was shot by the New York City police. And um, because the police were looking for a black rapist, and they saw this man. Amadou Diallo. Amadou Diallo. I don't know if that name means anything to most of your audience. Uh, And the newspapers talked about it afterward. The well-intentioned press talked about it as uh, something that had happened to him because of his identity, which couldn't have been more wrong. His identity had nothing to do with uh, being a black man, as the police probably identified him. He probably thought, if he didn't think of himself as a Guinean, he may have thought of himself as a Malenki or whatever his, his people were. That's how he thought of himself, but it didn't make any difference. The police officer's identification of him was what controlled the moment, not his identity as he defined it. And that is one of the characteristics of racism. Uh, Even though the targets may imagine that uh, their race is their identity, but in fact it's an identification and they can choose to identify others, identify them, but racism determines that one uh, can override the other. One thing that you two um, write about is how deeply held this belief or really ideology is that even amongst avowed opponents of racism, there's this idea that racism is prejudice related to something objective called race, that, that, that that's the source of racism. Yeah. How does that thinking play into liberal anti-racism? Part of it has to do with uh, the, the liberal anti-racists uh, evacuating the, the uh, class content of, of American society so that they can talk about race and racism in a vacuum. And as soon as you do it that way, you're in a self-defeating cycle because uh, then you have uh, the people you've identified as a race who are permanent targets and victims, but they have no access to politics. You don't even conceive it as a political situation. Uh, And and that's one of the things I see going on today with the... uh, Overdevelopment, the the exploding of whiteness into an all-encompassing something that really makes politics and history disappear. Whiteness has become something that seems to have an all-encompassing explanatory power, and I think the most prominent purveyor of this sort of thinking. Uh, a, a smart, but I think in some ways misguided one is Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is the the one of the leading proponents of this kind of white lash argument that figures white supremacy and whiteness as not only foundational but seemingly immutable and primordial, and that abstracts racism and race from political economic context. The recent popularity of these sorts of argument. Rem- Arguments reminds me of a line in your book that talks about a treatment of race that has it so that having arisen historically, race then ceases to be a historical phenomenon and becomes instead an external motor of history. Just when you said that reminded me of a line, I 
think uh, it is quoted in Racecraft of my mentor, the great historian C. Van Woodward, who in talking about uh, white supremacy in the closing decades of the 19th century said um, the question uh, was all was never white supremacy. It was which whites will be supreme. And that's one of the things that this whiteness argument, it covered up then and it covers up now. Not all white people have the same power. Not all white people are in the same class position. And even if you uh, can argue convincingly that they all have bigotry and prejudice, which is certainly not true across the board, but even if you do that, uh, you have to acknowledge that not everyone has the same level of power and the same level of responsibility, and therefore not everybody figures the same way in any plans we might try to have to get out of this situation. Uh, we, we're living we're living in the midst of the most uh, unrelenting and successful period of class warfare, I think in American history. And uh, the targets are working people, all kinds of working people. And um, the more we allow ourselves to look away from the structural political reasons for it, the more we're just helping those who have their feet on our necks hold them there more solidly. Why do you think that many on the liberal left find this analysis of Trump's rise that begins and ends with whiteness and racism. Obviously, Trump is a virulent racist, but this analysis of, of, of racism that lacks political, economic, historical context, why is that so it's attractive hopeless. to so many? It's a mystery to me, unless I consider how little um, historical knowledge or reading they have about how class societies operate in even our own, in the first place, and in our own past. There is, it's attractive to think that, well, we're, the thing that's front and, that's front and center is our identities and how we learn to get along together, to have interracial, what is it, race relations that are <laughs> good, that, that, that we can cooperate, but not the thing that's going on because they've never knew it was going on. And they, they didn't know what was going on when, when uh, cotton was the um, p- product produced by slaves in, in the South and white people who didn't count in the North and in the mills. You see, that was not, that, that didn't enter into the history that our generation now has inherited. And it's good to say that some, there's been some history recently that is bringing that very much into view. And I think there's also been a period of such intense political demobilization that um, large numbers of people, certainly it's true of a lot of uh, people my, the age of my students, but it's also true of uh, the people who like to think of themselves as the uh, opinion setters, the uh, scribbling and babbling classes, the people who write for the general circulation dailies and so on. Um, the, the long period of political demobilization has gotten them into a state where they really can't tell which end is up. Uh, my sister and I are old enough that we 
were at the 1963 March on Washington, which has now become almost a, a mythic event. Uh, and, uh, and one thing that is indelibly part of our memory of that occasion is uh, the way the crowds that assembled there, a lot, a lot of them were people wearing those curious little uh, straw builder hats, but they would have on them the insignia of the UAW, that is, United Auto Workers, for those in your audience who've never heard of that, and various other unions, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union. Um, and the point Steel I'm workers. making... <laughs> Steel workers, yeah. The point, our mine workers, the point I'm making is that that march, its official designation was a march for jobs and freedom. It was part of political mobilization at that time, even in the in the... A uh, recent aftermath of the, I mean, not in the aftermath, in the midst of the Cold War and the purges and so on, people still understood the connection between uh, labor and civil rights and that kind of agitation. So the people were, were out there and the honorary leader, um, and in fact the, the, uh, the person whose idea it was, A. Philip Randolph, he, he was a labor organizer. He was a union activist as well as uh, an activist in demanding rights for black people. Those connections were so natural that even dummies and political uh, novices understood the connections. They've been gone for a long time. And, uh, and the result is that, uh, number one, uh, when somebody says, working class people or working class voters today when someone in the press or the, the uh, information media misinformation media it might as well be called when they say uh, working class voters they in invariably mean white people they have forgotten that most Afro-Americans in this country are working people most Latinos however you define that ambiguous term. Most of them are working people. Southeast Asian migrants, most of them are working people and indeed a good many East Asian migrants. We have allowed that language to become part of the whiteness talk. And the result is that when things happen as they are happening hot and heavy today that are targeted against working people, our reaction fragments us so that we can't even talk about it that way. It's, it's this attack on people of color, or it's that attack on, on uh, black people, or on immigrants, or dreamers, or whatever it is. Um, we're, not getting, we're not going to get anywhere that way, because we have defined any possible political alliance out of existence before we've even tried to build it. If Ta-Nehisi Coates, I like him a lot, by the way. I've only met him a couple of times. I, I like him a lot, and some of his work is deeply moving. But uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, if, if, if he were right about the situation, you'd have to say there's no exit. There's nothing we can do. It reminds me of what people used to say uh, about the prospect of nuclear war back in the days when we had 
air raid drills, and, you know, uh, the illusion of shelters and so on. And, and somebody said, well, the only thing you can do about it is put your head between your legs and kiss your behind goodbye. <laughs> Duck and cover. <laughs> that seems to be the, the political prescription that comes out of, of the uh, whiteness. Uh, I don't know if whiteness is the right term for it, but that comes out of the primordial white racism argument. There's nothing to do about it. Put your head between your legs and kiss your butt goodbye. A corollary argument that um, people like Coates make is that attempts to talk about class are efforts to distract from racism or to exculpate the white working class for its bigotries. That is... That it's a devastating bad, uh, bad mistake. It's it's just intolerable as as a mistake. I'd like to come back to um, to having said that I the idea the personalized the identitarian understandings lead you in the wrong direction, and it leads uh, lead many lead many people in the wrong direction, and they tend to say, we're talking about that now, that's fundamental, not economics, not class. You bring class in, you're trying to deny uh, the reality of human existence <laughs> in an identity. But that is the big mystification that is achieved by, uh, by racecraft. It looks like a real, what looks like um, a relation between people, Race relations is really a an economic relation that's subverted, that's sub submerged. That's the American ideology. We have a, a, a poly-human society, and we have an economic order that goes relentlessly in the same way as untouchable and untalkable, because people live in identities without understanding. They live in the world of work. Now... But the era that Barbara was talking about, the uh, labor era, they were fighting fights to get rights. But now that's not here and not even legitimate in some the eyes of some people. Barbara, catch me if I've gone too far. <laughs> I'd like to ask some of the people who, uh, who believe deeply in this framework of it all has to do with the white psyche or... I don't know where it's located. The psyche, the guts, the bowels, I don't know where it is, but the white something. I'd like to ask them, well, so what do you do about it? What do we do about it? Uh, do we sit back and just allow the juggernaut to run over us? Or do we do something? And if we do something, what is it? Uh, now, here's the other thing about the white primordialists. And that term used to be used back when uh, Winthrop Jordan's White Over Black was uh, the talk of, of the at least the scholarly uh, people discussing this. But there were others, and, uh, and it, it all had to do with white racism. It goes back to practically back to the egg. You find it in the Bible and so on. And the thing about that argument always was, if this is something that is fundamental, that is built into white people, it has to be built into everybody, so it must be built into black people as well, because if you don't believe that it's built into everybody, then you are back with the first 
premise of racism, which is that there's no not one human species. There are many. We're all different. I think that's if, a very important point, that pri- the primordial account of white racism has as its necessary corollary biological race theory as well on some level. Well, it has to, or else uh, they're they're left saying that this is something that's that's uh, programmed into white people, but it's not programmed into anybody else. Well, how does it happen that it's not programmed into anybody else? Well, the only way that could arise is if they accept the the really old and discredited notions. <laughs> Separate creation. <laughs> separate creation or or distinct races and so on, because otherwise you have to uh, assume that this uh, whiteness thing is everybody's creation. And uh, I I just I've never had I've never been able to uh, I've never been presented face to face with someone who was prepared to carry this argument through. But I would like to be because I want to hear what they have to say about that. If if, if uh, white people have this, doesn't everybody have to have it? And if everybody has it, then how do you account for any of the moments in history when it's been possible to break free of some of it? When it's been possible to uh, to have cracks in the in the, the structure? When there have been alliances among people who are in the opposition? How do you account for that? It also seems a a, a big political problem with the primordialist account of racism also seems to be that the the upshot for for white people self-interested white people uh, reading that account would be to act in defense of white supremacy if mm-hmm. racism is good for white people won't that convince many to be racist um, i think it's interesting that a lot of contemporary white supremacists and white nationalists refer to white people embracing racism as race realism. Another term that's in vogue with them is human biodiversity. So I think it's telling that these avowedly racist white supremacist people on the right seem very aware that race, believing in in in, in the primordial account of race, is a, is a critical part of racism. Yeah, as a, a, ca- a catechism that includes the inherent distinctness of the different peoples corresponding to the names that human beings invented for them. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it really does not serve those of us on the left to, uh, to believe that the tools of tribalism will ever be tools of liberation. They can't be. <laughs> if, it, if it comes down to a battle <laughs> of tribes, firepower will win every time. Well, I have another dimension I want to think uh, if that runs through all this. Um, you asked about uh, our, our different uh, ec- educational and professional uh, trajectories, and mine has gone via, via Max Weber, the great sociologist of the 19th century, turn of the 20th. He said, he argued, he said it's fundamental in a, a collection called The Social Psychology of the World Religions. What's fundamental to religion is, a, uh, is an explanation of misfortune, that a, a, the, a theodicy that explains why some people do well and some people don't. 
and there's a way to there's a route to calm in a society if everybody shares that theodicy. And that's a religious thing he was talking about, but I think of race thought as religious in that sense. It is very definitely there as something to answer the question, why are we so blessed for the people who are doing well and who think they are the most beautiful creatures on that, that were created? And, <laughs> <laughs> and those who did, didn't do well... Something was wrong with them. Let's find out what it was. Is it the skin color, which, which entails low intelligence and laziness? Or what is it? You see, that becomes a language for explaining the facts that are, quote-unquote, explaining the, the state of affairs without doing so, but with a mystique that people then take on because they have the objects. They have the races that, have been, that are daily constructed by the rituals that we go through that establish the inferiority of some people and the superiority of some people. And Barbara and I emphasized a lot those actions that go on because this, we're not talking about a thing, the uh, set of ideas is a thing. We're talking about actions that both express and recreate those, uh, those beliefs, those ideas. And so... Chapter two is about things you can see if you're walking down the street, if you're paying attention. That are rituals that establish bad fortune for some and good fortune for others and the feeling of, of it if you're in it yourself. So if you are on the committee that designs the segregation law for Charleston, you know it's on your, uh, you, know, you, you benefit from it psychologically. And you explain the situation of others to your satisfaction. And if they can control what those other people are taught, they'll teach themselves the same thing. I think that's underlining an important point that I wanted to ask you about, which is how, how the practice of racism conjures up and recreates race again. And again, we discussed the case of Amadou Diallo, who yeah. had the category of blackness imposed on him and was shot in a hail, died in a hail of 41 bullets in 1999. Mm -hmm. um, other things that come to mind as examples of how race, racism currently reproduces race are the, the huge numbers of black people in, in, prison. In, in prison and how that not only marks black people as criminal, but really produces blackness. Um, and then similar things with residential and school segregation and how the the black ghetto or the almost entirely black urban public school for many people seem to be the result of an action result of the action of black pathology rather than of of racism the way it gets translated into the uh, thought patterns of ordinary people ordinarily informed Americans, which is to say pretty uninformed because Americans <laughs> as a group are uninformed. But that's, that's a pretty accurate uh, representation of uh, how they form their notions. So they will read in the paper about the uh, numbers of black people in prison, and that helps to solidify their identification of black people with criminality and uh, 
they don't have to have experienced it at all to know that it is a reality and that it is a characteristic of black people. Uh, one of my colleagues in the Southern Historical Association had me in stitches one year um, talking about the, uh, uh, some, he was commenting on a remark that somebody had made about how he, or maybe it was a she, felt in seeing a black person approaching on the street and I said, I just can't help remembering that, quoted some statistic, three out of every four black people are in prison, something like that whose purpose was to say, I have a reason for why I feel uneasy when I see this person approaching you on the street. And my colleagues said, well, if, if uh, three out of four black people are in prison, then they can't be approaching you on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you don't, need to feel, you don't need to feel uneasy about that person. So but that is, uh, it, it's a reductio ad absurdum, but that is the way uh, people are inclined to, to form their notions about human beings that they know very little about, they have very little experience with, but they think they know a lot about. And, uh, and it informs the experiences that they will then have in dealing with those people. Just before I, you called, I was out walking my dog and uh, on an, an area that's controlled by the New York City Park Parks Department, and uh, and it's next to a playground where dogs are not allowed. And uh, and a, a white man, I have to characterize him this way because he soon proved that that's what he was, had left his dog tied up next to the uh, uh, playground where the dog didn't have any business while he was at the far end playing with his daughter on the swing and the dog was uh, in a way standing post so that I couldn't even approach with my dog. And uh, and I approached the man and I said, is that your dog? And he immediately went into an attack mode. Are you the park police? I'm just out here with my, with my daughter and I'm playing with my daughter and there's a big park and blah, 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 blah. And I didn't say to him, I thought afterwards, this is what I should have said uh, instead of allowing him to heat the situation to uh, simmering, if not boiling point right away. What I should have said to him was, one way to react in a situation like this is to say, oh, I'm sorry, knowing that you're legally in the wrong. Oh, I'm sorry, is my dog in your way? But instead, his reaction, he sees an elderly black woman approaching with her dog, and his reaction doesn't have anything to do with respect for the older person. It doesn't have anything to do with respect for the law. It's right away my entitlement. He's right away a white person facing down a black person. And that's, he didn't say any of that. And I wish I had made him say it by starting with, why don't we start with courtesy? Why don't you start by apologizing? <laughs> And then let it come out so that he could see it. But I was so angry I couldn't even do that. I'm a teacher, and I missed a moment when I could have taught him something. Because there he is with his two-year-old daughter. He told me that detail. And he's teaching her to be as big a so-and-so as he is. It's the um, worst feeling to come up with the best comeback just a minute or two too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the French used to call it the spirit of the stairway. 
<laughs> As you're walking down the stairs to leave the place where you should have made the statement, you think of what you should have said. But it, it, it's, it's such a, it's a small moment, though, that really embodies all the moments like that. And it doesn't have to be only the racist moments either. But uh, our society being what it is, it often takes the form of racist moments because the person who knows that he's put his dog in the wrong place uh, and knows that he's violating the law, uh, but confronted by a black person pointing this out, will go right to <laughs> the ground where he is uppermost and uh, and not think that this is an this is an instance where courtesy and fellow feelings should take precedence, but uh, they won't and they can't in in the atmosphere that we have. This um, reminds me of the discussion in the book of Du Bois and the notion of double consciousness, mm-hmm. and something that was palpable for me reading the the book was that it seemed to be motivated by both of your very understandable, I assume, lifelong frustrations over not being approached as Karen and Barbara Fields, but immediately interpolated as black woman. That's right. And that's one of the sources of the book itself. We have all, I mean, we have gone back and forth for years over the things that happened in the high, high, in the heights of academe of this sort. Barbara comes down the street and has uh, somebody who doesn't, who she tries to say hello to because they're in the same building where the class, they have the classrooms. And he jumps as if he <laughs> he's going to be attacked. He doesn't recognize that she's a colleague. And there are many stories like, stories like that. And there's no amount of time, it seems, that you can be around there without looking like you don't belong there. Places like that and places like the university. I worked in. That's why I wrote a, kept a, a ethnographer's guide since I'm a sociologist and wrote a draft called Race Matters in the American Academy and described things with using people's names. <laughs> the things of what? that sort that happened. <laughs> Establishing status, you know, superiority, these subtle and unsubtle ways of saying who's in charge. And I circulated it. Uh, open list, and I said, write back if any one of these is inaccurate. <laughs> no one wrote a word. Yeah. No one said it was wrong. And I said, I gave examples like that, and but others that were worse. Our father, our father was an architect and uh, who... Uh, had a practice by the time he, later in his career, um, he was a sole practitioner, and most of his, a, a good bit of his work, let's say, was for the Roman Catholic Church. He did a lot of institutional things. But the, the thing about being an architect is that often your clients don't have to see you in person. So many of his clients were dealing with the firm, but they had no idea who the principal of the firm was. And he told us one, well, he told us this many times. He said, not a day goes by that somebody does not remind me that I'm black. And one instance he gave was 
the client who for some reason or other had to come into the office, and the office was in one of those three-story federal buildings in Washington, and his office was upstairs. So when he had to meet the client, he had to come down the stairs, and he described the face of this person as uh, he saw a black person coming down the steps and realized that was the Bob Fields that he had been talking to as an architect. And all of a sudden, Bob Fields materializes as a black man, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And, and his whole... You his know, whole now, these, these, <laughs> go ahead. His faith in the certainties of the universe came crashing down in that one instance. Yeah, and but you look at... Uh, Dozens of those situations and what they teach all, all the people who are participating in yeah. them about the way the world works. Now, I mentioned one of them in the article that subsequently appeared in Racecraft because it, it the Huntington, stood out for me. I think it's Huntington, the, Pennsylvania? No, no, I was coming to that one, too. But this one is the, uh, the little boy who was the son of, of one of the staff members in the... Uh, department where I taught for a, a semester at, at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. And the mother was, uh, this is a white woman, but everybody there was really people. They were, they were all decent people. And one day she was telling us that her son had come back from uh, school or playground or someplace where he was with other kids his age, four or five or something like that. And he was talking about one of his playmates and his mother asked him if the playmate was black. And the little boy said, no, he's brown. And then the mother chuckled. And when she told the story to everybody else around there, we all chuckled because for everyone, I think it was it was in the first place. It was a story about the innocence of childhood and about the fact that children don't know anything about races. They don't think anything about them. They don't come naturally to racism. So that was the the first and heartwarming level of that story. But the next level of the story for me was reflecting on what that little boy learned when his mother chuckled when he said, no, he's not black, he's brown. And what the little boy learned was that the answer I gave to that question is not the right answer. Grown-ups like it, and they laugh at it, but the fact that they laugh at it tells me that it's not really the right answer. So the next time he's asked that question, he will know that uh, to ask whether his playmate is black is not to ask for a description, it's to ask for a classification. And he will grow up knowing that. And, and this is every American's miseducation and every American child's miseducation in racecraft. Well, yes, it is. But but look at what else it is. It's also in Oxford, Mississippi, at Ole Miss, which still lives in infamy. It is also an illustration of a white person who is happy because her child is growing up free of racism. <laughs> And that's what stimulates the chuckle. That's what makes it funny to her. So here, here's a, a, a person who's, whose faith is good, whose will is good, whose intentions are good. And she's reacting to a situation that could happen uh, anywhere 
in the country. But her reaction to it is, I'm so glad that my little boy isn't a racist. And while she was reacting that way, she was teaching him as as a friend of mine, a, an email friend. I only know him from email correspondence. She's teaching him what that friend referred to as learning how to color. And children have to learn it. It doesn't. It's it's not programmed. We don't have it automatically, but somehow they learn how to color. And they can learn in innocent situations, even heartwarming situations, or they learn in the situation you just referred to, the children at the playground, I mean, at the swimming pool, uh, at a country club. Karen knows this story better than I do. Yeah. Uh, where the children uh, had been permitted to go uh, by the, what was it, the, the director gave permission. But, yeah. But the uh, some of the members were were not privy to it, and so there was a, a reaction of horror when all these black children show up. And one little girl who doesn't understand I mean, these are children; um, she doesn't understand what all the fuss is about. About so she asks if she's too dark to go swimming. Uh, and the, the the black the black children and maybe also Hispanic I'm not sure come into this pool in suburban Philadelphia, and white parents are l- literally pulling panicked in a panic pulling their children from the water. Yes, yes, running as though uh, something had come from the jungle or out of space. And the children, it from what I understood. It's not that the children were afraid. It's that their parents were instantly panic-stricken and had to, to drag the kids out. And uh, Karen is the one who first came upon this episode. And uh, the, the point she made about it, you, you when you see it at first, you have an immediate reaction. Anybody of decency and goodwill has an immediate reaction about what's wrong with that. But the the next re- reaction on reflection that Karen had was uh, the news media are prepared to cover this uh, from the standpoint of, of the black children and how they felt about it. And it was one of them who featured the little girl saying, am I too dark to go swimming? But the point Karen made was, what did those white children make of that situation? And when, they didn't try they, to find out. They did not think it was a question. Yeah. It's a kind of incident that is educating those young white people to exactly. have the same sort of beliefs about race that their their parents did in grabbing exactly. them out of the water. Exactly. Yeah. And that the must thing be is, yeah. yeah. And, and and the further point about that is that uh, just as that little black child didn't know what all this was about. Neither do the white children at first. And some of them will have reacted, no doubt, because children react this way when they see something that they think, that's not fair. That is one of the the reactions that comes from young children out of their own play situations and their knowledge of the world. So some number of those white children probably reacted uh, with distress to what happened. We don't know that. And, and we don't know what they asked. Parents why it was necessary, natural, and normal. 
Yeah. We don't know what conversations happened after that or what questions the white children asked. So, uh, and there you have it. And the people who, who, uh, who make uh, an overweening monster out of whiteness, it's something built into white people, they're not looking at the, the textural details of a situation like that. Because if they did, then they would have to focus on this as something that is historical and it's particular to situations. And it's the, and and it's contingent and thus defeatable. Yes, yes. I mean, this is anybody who had all of the the great thinkers about human societies who have uh, tried to tackle it, they start with the assumption, if we figure out how this thing came into being, then we can figure out how to put an end to it. That was Marx's approach in talking about capitalism and capital. C. Van Woodward, when he tried to get at the origins of segregation, for all the attacks that scholars have made on his work since then, uh, his main point was, if I can figure out where this thing started, then I can figure out how it can stop. If we don't have a historical understanding of these things, then we are trapped in a kind of groundhog day. And the thing has to just keep going on and going on and going on, and we have no clue uh, how it began, and therefore no clue about how we might bring it to an end. And that's the crime of this type of thinking. You chose the term racecraft by way of analogizing it to witchcraft, which is compelling on a lot of different levels. But for listeners who are not familiar with witchcraft and with the anthropological study of it, can can you lay out how witchcraft operates and and why the analogy works? Well, I yes, there's a reason the analogy works that doesn't doesn't serve my purpose. This is Karen speaking. They think that it means dismissal, that it's not has no intellectual worth because witchcraft isn't true. And so I, I have to be careful with that. I was working on African religions before I came to this project, and they're um, a kind of thing that happened in the area I was studying that were witchcraft removal uh, revivals. And it was a very active cleaning of evil out of countries, and a thought anthropologist became interested in saying, how could people who otherwise seem so practical have ideas like this? And one very brilliant one E.E. Evans Pritchard said, we have it too. And he wrote that book, Witchcraft, Magic, and Oracles Among the Zandi, to show the rational processes used. And that's what, that the rational processes involved are part of what we're, we're doing. For example, we usually believe in cause and effect. If you um, kick a ball, it's going to go down the way. We, can, we know cause and effect. But somebody says, uh, uh, if you touch this black person, you're going to get sick, and it's believed, then it means that there's a different process. Let's not assume they're dumb to begin with. Let's say there's a process. And one of the things that 
goes with systems of belief that don't require ordinary causality is precisely that. You have great freedom to invent social reality that everybody shares because everybody shares it verbally and experientially. And so I found it useful to read about race, uh, witchcraft because there was so much kinship. We have bright people and we have things happening and we have foiled predictions and those don't die. You know, you can't get rid of the prediction that black people are stupid or violent. You just can't. And, you, and so you see things. And for me, it was a lens that allowed me to see better what existed in my own society. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles. Perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Black Lives Matter at School, an uprising for educational justice by Jesse Hagopian and Denisha Jones. Black Lives Matter at School succinctly generalizes lessons from successful challenges to institutional racism that have been won through the Black Lives Matter at School movement. This book will inspire many more educators and activists to join the Black Lives Matter at School movement at a moment when this anti-racist work in our schools could not be more urgent and critical to education justice. As Ibram X. Kendi says of the book, the educators, students, and community activists whose stories are documented here are fighting for a transformative vision of what public schools can be and the grassroots efforts we will need to get there. Black Lives Matter at School is an essential resource for all those seeking to build an anti-racist school system. Black Lives Matter at School, an uprising for educational justice by Jesse Hagopian and Denisha Jones. Out now from Haymarket Books. Maybe looking at one of Evans Pritchard's most well-known examples from that book, which I read as a young undergraduate anthropology major, um, Hmm. might might help elucidate uh, the analogy further. If I remember correctly, there's a a scene where a some sort of building, maybe a a granary, the roof falls Mm -hmm. down on someone's head and kills them, and immediately witchcraft is suspected. Can you, can you lay out what happens? He says, well, they, they go, they, it is a, um, an event that falls in the category of things that can happen as a result of witchcraft. And the methods Evans Pritchard describes are oracular, uh, oracular methods or divinatory message methods. You figure out, which it is, whether it's witchcraft or something else, by doing that, and they're experts of doing that. And then you figure out who in the same way. And then there are ways of, of, of proof. Uh, you find a certain kind of, of thing in the body of somebody who's a relative who died or the person who was suspected of, ways of witchcraft and so on. Those are um, the, the, the things that rationality can achieve in the service of things that on the surface are not rational, because witchcraft is not possible. It's amazing. The center 
problem of witchcraft. I mean, yes, witchcraft is what I was saying a while ago, the theodicy problem. Again, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's a set of answers, and they all have to be in the metaphysical realm or the imaginative realm, but not uh, like science. And they're not for that uh, stupid. Um, They're just a way of thinking that is human to the core. Independently, we found ourselves, because we exchange things that we've written uh, periodically, and independently, we found that we were both comparing uh, race the way it works in American society with rich witchcraft. And I did it in an article in which I was uh, arguing against the primordialists who, who think that there's nothing to explain historically because there's something that's always been there in white people. Uh, but we both ended up with an analogy with witchcraft. And I think in both our instances, the, the necessary first step was that we had to have some kind of intellectual uh, detachment from American society and the American version of, of race, thinking about race. Uh, it can be an actual physical detachment, but you have to have a way of taking a distance from it. Yes, uh, in, in another article, I said that otherwise you are trying to lift something up while you're standing on it. Yes. You can't lift it until you step off. And the stepping off is taking a distance from the way people think about race in American society. And for me, uh, one of the the most dramatic ways that happened was when I spent time in, I spent a year in Tanzania, which Karen, by the way, had done before I did, Uh, but I learned to speak Swahili. And, uh, And one of the many things that stood out for me about that was learning that in Swahili, the words for black and white were never used to distinguish people of African descent from people of European descent. If they used Mwayupe and Mwayusi, which are black and white in Swahili, they were using them the same way we might speak of someone as blonde or brunette, uh, as light-complexioned or dark-complexioned, but it also is just a color, you know, like the little boy. Is he black? No, he's brown. It was a, a color distinction, and when they were actually trying to distinguish of white from black the way Americans might do it. They had words that refer to national origin. So uh, an African was a Mwafrika, uh, a person of European extraction was Mzungu, which could also be an American. And and, uh, one particular episode that... uh, crystallized things for me was an Afro-American woman who had married a Tanzanian and she had lived in Tanzania for a long time. Uh, She was fluent in Swahili and she thought of herself as an African person. Now, she stood out on the streets of Dar es Salaam because she always dressed in elaborate West African bubas and uh, lace head pieces and, and all the rest of the costume that uh, an ordinary working Tanzanian couldn't possibly afford. So while she was identifying herself as African in this way, she was also 
she was setting herself apart, but she didn't realize this. And one day I encountered her almost in tears. Well, she was in tears because a Tanzanian had referred to her as a Mzungu, which means a European, a white person. And she, how can you call me Mzungu? I am more Africa. How can you say that? Well, they could say that because she, she had the money, she had the bearing, she had all of the appurtenances of the people who would be called Mzungu. And so <laughs> that meant that this whole way of talking about people's origins or their belonging or the way they looked just was incommensurable with the way we do it in the United States. And I needed to to experience that in order to be able to write about race when I came back home and went to graduate school. Because uh, that was being in a place where there I was surrounded by black people, but not black people. You see, <laughs> they were Watanzania, or they were Wafrika. There was a Ghanaian woman in in the circle in which I often moved in Dar es Salaam, uh, who actually uh, was criticized uh, by some of the local people because she couldn't speak Swahili and they didn't believe it. Well, how can she not speak Swahili? <laughs> so they thought she was just being a snob. Uh, so I had a whole system of classification to understand that was engaged in by people who would be, by Americans, they would be classified as black people. And that took uh, race, that turned race into a historical phenomenon for me, so that when I wrote about it later, I couldn't write about it the way the primordialists did. Uh, it, it just The story you tell uh, uh, about this woman in Dar es Salaam is in some ways the inverse of of. Amadou Diallo's story and of these sort of racial classification systems being lost in translation. And in Diallo's case, obviously, it was a tra- tragic and horrific. And in this woman's case, in Dar es Salaam, farcical. But they, yeah. but uh, they seem to carry si- both point towards similar lessons. Yeah, and one thing I didn't say this when we were talking about Diallo, but but. Uh... One of the things that I have long thought about that situation is that if the police officers had realized that he was African, they wouldn't have shot him. They, in other words, they make a distinction between black people, which is Afro-Americans, and Africans and others. But it's just that it's not visible. You can't, they may think you can see, but you can't see. So I think that had they had an inkling when they approached that apartment building that they were dealing with an African immigrant, they would not have reacted the way they did. They would have been more likely Uh, to think he was reaching for his wallet as he was. Yeah, or they might have uh, not have assumed that he was an armed rapist in the first place. Uh, You know, he was was reacting, uh, this is my assumption about it, he was reacting to what looked like armed thugs who came into the place shouting and he thought he could buy them off by giving them his wallet. Uh, Nobody, no no white police officer would ever assume that a black person, which is the way they saw him, could uh, react to a white person as to a street thug. You know, it didn't occur to them. They dressed as street thugs because that was their undercover outfit, but it never occurred to them that they could actually read 
to a, a civilian on the street as street thugs because to them, street thug means black person. So it doesn't even occur to them and it didn't even occur to the news media at the time that he thought he was about to become the victim of a street crime. And they couldn't see it that way. Uh, but I think that if they had recognized him as an African, uh, maybe they wouldn't have believed that even an African could see a white police officer as a thug, but I think they would not have seen him immediately as a threat that needed to be taken down with uh, gunfire. I think an important point in your in your book, you, you were both talking about this critical distance necessary to see racecraft for what it is that you can't pick something up while you're standing on it, I think is the way you phrased it. Yeah. Um, and what you what you identify racecraft as is ideology, which is a word that I think you use in its Marxist sense rather than what it might mean in its various colloquial uses. Can you define the term ideology in the sense that you're using it and explain how racecraft operates as an ideology? I can't quote from uh, the German ideology, or for that for that place in chapter four of capital, uh, chapter one, section four of capital fetishism of the commodity, and the secret thereof. But first thing I would say is read that, and you will see the man coming to grips with the transformation of an ordinary object into something else through the social process, uh, through the social process of trade. So the objects of trade, he goes on in that section in a hilarious way, saying the articles, according to the ideology, speak of them as have them speaking to each other, rather than passing each other as uh, a rep, uh, communication from the source of the sender and the returner there. And it's a, it's, it's a clouding of reality that you cannot see in the day-to-day process of whatever it is because it's not there to explain itself. It's there to operate on understandings of how it works that are in a place or trading would not be possible. Yeah, and so when I talk, talk to my students about this, I, I, uh, and I turn it into a, a laughing matter in a way because I, I say, isn't it, isn't it uh, amusing that we speak of the economy, and all of you, you've heard we talk about the economy. It's, it's a human being. It can be depressed. <laughs> Just as a human being can be depressed. But, but it, 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 there is no such thing as the economy. It is actually the result of many millions of individual decisions that people make. And we speak of it as the economy, personified or reified better uh, precisely because we can't get hold of all those individual actions, but we have to simplify it for our minds. So we turn it into the economy. And then I explain to them, this isn't original with me, that if you have a village where the elders will say to different families, all right, you grow this much grain, you grow that much grain, and you plant this field, and you deal with that field. And then at harvest time, the elders say, all right, you get this much of the harvest because you have this size family. You get that much of the harvest because you have another size. 
and as a result, all of the product of all of their work has been distributed among everybody. And then I tell the students, nobody in that society who was not a lunatic would say that these decisions are the product of the economy. Because they would all see that these are the decisions that the elders made. They would know exactly where it came from. We have, we reify those decisions when we can't actually see where they came from. So uh, we, we uh, talk about them in that way. Uh, well, that is the way ideologies develop because ideologies are ways of talking about the world as we experience it. And, uh, and sometimes we're experiencing the, uh, here's the actual process, this elder said do this and, and do that, but sometimes we are seeing through a glass darkly, as St. Paul puts it. We cannot see what's actually going on, but we give a name to the result of what's going on. And then we account for it in whatever rough and ready way we may have. That is my understanding of an ideology. It's not a scientific explanation. It's, it's a, a rough and ready approximation. This is why we do that. When you get to, and this is an example that I have in the article and I use it with my students often, when you come up to a red light, you don't sit and, uh, and ruminate on the philosophy of what you do at an intersection that is controlled by a red light. I, I used this example once talking to an audience in Brazil and they laughed at me though because I was talking uh, uh, about a society where you actually stop for a red light and they were laughing. <laughs> Nobody here stops. <laughs> but the point is, there, there, we do have a reason why we stop for the red light. And there's an explanation that actually makes a lot of sense, but it's not a calculation that we make at the corner. The explanation is everybody understands that uh, regardless of our respect for the law or not, we need to know what everybody else is going to do at the intersection. And we have lights there or stop signs uh, or some other convention if there's nothing material like that so that everybody knows what everybody else will do at the intersection. And uh, when you are a teenager and your parents are teaching you how to drive, they will tell you what you're supposed to do at a four-way or at a red light or at a flashing yellow and so on. Well, that's the approximation of an ideology. It's what you need to know to get through the intersection or to get through the day. It is not... And it need not be demonstrable by thought process outside the, the context in which that's being done. Yeah, and Correct. it may not, and it need not be aware of who, who designed the first traffic light. Where was the first traffic light? How did people react? You know, you don't have to know all that. You have a habit of doing a certain thing when you come to that light and you have a, an explanation that's good enough for why you need to do it. And I tell my students that it, it, it not only is it not scientific, but it better not be too detailed in how it gets to grips with the underlying reality because otherwise it puts you in the position of the mythical millipede who was asked, how in the world can you walk with all those legs? And as soon as he stopped to think about it, he couldn't walk anymore. 
ideologies are what allow us to walk with a thousand legs and not think about it, because if we think about it, then we can't do it. And so with regard to racecraft as an ideology, would you agree with Stuart Hall's formulation that race is the modality in which classes lived, class relations experienced and fought out? It, it can be. And I think in this country, um, that that's as good a statement as any, because when you uh, people weren't a race by virtue of being Africans in in uh, European uh, society, but they became that after they arrived. Uh, and in the United States, because they were incorporated into a society where um, people could take freedom for granted. In other words, it was not a society premised on the the normality of slavery. Slavery was normal in or and became even more normal in part of the country, but in the country as a whole, it had been uh, present from the very beginning. All the 13 original colonies had slavery at the time of the Declaration of Independence. But shortly thereafter, most of them either abolished it or they um, began the process of, of abolishing it. So uh, enslavement became a sufficiently anomalous situation that it had to be accounted for. But ideologically, I mean, not, this isn't science, although it, it uh, could be couched as science in this era when people were starting to speak that way. But it, it's really ideological. And it's that there's something different about people of African descent that uh, uh, defines this anomalous situation they occupy in a country where freedom is to be taken for granted. Well, my argument is that the next step, emancipation, uh, deposits the former slaves for the most part into another uh, social category that's not accepted as a basis for citizenship because now they're proletarians, they're, they're working people. And there were white people in that status, but it still was not accepted. Uh, the, the idea was still uh, one day you're going to have property and you're going to have power. Abraham Lincoln said, there's no such thing as a hireling laborer having to be a hireling laborer all his life. It wasn't yet accepted that being dependent on working for somebody else could be the status of a citizen. But most of the, the uh, black slaves were released into just such a, a, a category. So their class position is the way they are defined as a race. It was when they were slaves, because slave was an anomalous uh, uh, category, and working people, proletarianized working people, is their uh, categorization as free people. I'm talking about the former slaves. So both of those are class positions that come to define a racial position. So if that's the point Stuart Hall was making, then I think he, he uh, had an insight that's correct to the American situation. Today, how does do race and racism continue to 
reproduced and justify the the political economic order? Let me just say, and let me uh, recommend listeners uh, to the work of Adolf Reed, because uh, he's one of he's a political scientist and one of the people who most clearly. And there are a number of younger people doing this too. Cedric Robinson comes to mind. Uh, in spite of what. Uh, a good many of the race first, last, and all the time people say a number of Afro-Americans are part of the bourgeoisie, not the black bourgeoisie, which was uh, uh, what I think when Franklin Fraser used that term, he was using it sarcastically in a way yep. to talk about people who were precisely not a bourgeoisie, <laughs> uh, a petty bourgeoisie perhaps. We have a lot of Afro-Americans, not a lot statistically, but there are a number of Afro-Americans who are, in fact, incorporated into the bourgeoisie. Uh, But most are working people and at the hazard of whatever happens to working people. Uh, But there are working people who, in in the parlance of American journalism, American public discourse, don't get to be working people because that that category is reserved for white people. So we have a whole working class, a whole uh, part of the American working class that the uh, scribbling and babbling classes don't understand to be part of the working class. That brings up an issue that you both said you really didn't want to, I think both of you said you really didn't want to discuss and you can shoot it down. But I really do think that your analysis would provide some interesting insight into why Rachel Dolezal identifying as black, but quote unquote, actually being white, why this transgression, this odd transgression so infuriated people on the left and so delighted people on the right? Well, I, I I wasn't aware of people on the left, or on anything I would call the left, being infuriated by it. But my reaction was, uh, why would someone need to uh, put up a pretense? The, the history of uh, agitation on behalf of the rights of black people has never depended on your identifying yourself as a as a black person. Uh, the NAACP uh, had white leaders before it had a black leader. And its first black leader was a white man. Remember? <laughs> we were talking about him just now. If I may break in, he opens, I am a Negro. My skin is white. My hair is blonde. My eyes are blue. I am a Negro. And that he was the first black or rather, Negro uh, head of the NAACP. Walter White. <laughs> yeah, a man called White was the name of his book. And, uh, he called it, and, yes. And he, yes. he part of, part of uh, his effectiveness was that he could go and investigate lynchings in the South because he could mingle without uh, people knowing that he was a Negro. He actually recounts an episode, I think it was on a train, but my memory may be playing tricks, in which he heard a group of white people talking right in front of him about what they were going to do if they ever could lay their hands on this Walter White character, this this, uh, Negro from the NAACP, and they didn't know that he was right there. 
yeah, I don't know how we got off onto him. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I guess in Dalazal's case, I'm wondering just why why people were so upset at the sort of unusual situation of a white woman passing as as black and being exposed. Why why it became so why the sort of oddity that turned the historical kind of pattern on its head was so troubling to people. Well, I I said all that to say that it didn't trouble me, uh, (laughs) except that I thought, here's another uh, oddity that people are, it's another rope-a-dope. We're going to focus on this one. There are more important things going on, and who cares? I couldn't understand why she would need to pose as anything, because she could be a leader of the NAACP as a white woman. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter. So, and I don't understand why anybody would have been upset by any of it, except to the extent that it was a stupid conversation, a stupid episode that was treated as though it were something of major importance. And uh, that's why I said, uh, he said, we shot it down. Yeah, we're tired of people talking about racial identities as though that's the issue. It's not the issue. And whether somebody calls herself white or black uh, isn't really uh, something that we need to be focused on, but you can understand why the news media like that. For the same reason they like stories about a white woman who gives birth to twins and one of them is dark-skinned and the other is white. And then they, you know, they turn it into a whole episode. And I know they're going to just go nuts. They already, they've already started with the woman who's who's planning to marry the duke or the prince of whatever it is uh, in Britain. For many, it does pass as an issue of justice. I, I, as absurd as that sounds, that that Rachel Dolezal saying she's black is is people would use this language. I'm not making it up. That it's doing some sort of violence to black people yeah i know well, the, identity. The, 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 the category i would put it in would also include uh the people who uh get angry because a white woman wore her hair in cornrows or who got <laughs> angry at uh, uh the the novelist who uh in a deliberate protest against the the uh charge of cultural appropriation she gave a talk wearing a sombrero uh, and I thought she was making valid points. I didn't really understand the point of the sombrero, but I think it's, it must be part of the same phenomenon. And I don't understand why people get angry because uh, somebody did a photograph or, or did an impression of a photograph of uh, Emmett Till. Emmett uh, Till. Yeah, I, you know, but it, I think it's the same thing, that the same kind of anger that you're talking about. Uh, and I. I call it uh, adolescent behavior by people who can't think of anything more important to do. I mean, it's but I think that's precisely it. It's a way of talking about certain things so as to not maybe not, not intentionally, not talk sorry, about but the functionally. Real thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, which brings me to another part of your argument. I personally think that we that it is analytically important to identify the 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 way that racism has different impact on different within capitalism has disparate impacts on different groups of people. But I think you make a very important point about the exclusive focus in some quarters on racial disparity. Um, because by implication, it proposes that once 
the ruling class, working class, are and poor are demographically representative, that everything will be great. Or, or as you two write, um, that there, people whose most radical goal is the reallocation of unemployment, poverty, and injustice rather than their abolition. Tell me about the focus on racial disparity and for someone like me who does believe that it needs to play some role in analysis, um, what role, if any, you think it should play in a left-wing critique of the ruling political economic order? Everybody needs to be able to know that that exists as a fact, well-documented. But it won't carry, that fact won't carry a lot of water elsewhere, but it does matter if you're if you're talking in the air, wave hand-waving rather than saying this and this and this exist when you're making a claim to an action to um, affect the North Carolina's um, allocation of funds toward the support of, it, of agriculture, for example, when they lost out as they did on exports. But... Um, that's right. It is important to be able to speak of facts, but but say speaking of facts is not a politics or a guide to policy. You have to uh, use the facts. You have to have a plan. That, what's yeah. Happening. Yeah, you have yeah. to know what you're going to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. if we know that uh, uh, agricultural workers in uh, working in uh, for the big growers as as uh, the uh, California people call themselves, they're not farmers, they're growers. Uh, we know that the people who work in those fields are subjected to uh, pesticides as well as to all kinds of uh, uh, substandard, uh, uh, I said California, but I could have been talking about other parts of the country too, yeah. substandard conditions. But you know, if if you turn that into an issue having to do with the identities of people of color, then you have let the agribusiness farmers off the hook. Yes. And we know why they uh, take advantage of the workforce that has to do the that has to approach closest to the pesticides and it has to work without proper sanitary conditions sometimes and so on. We know why they're doing that. And it's not because they have anything in their hearts about so-called people of color. It's because they're getting their work done in the cheapest way they can get it done. And they're happy to do that. And they don't uh, really care about which people they're exploiting to do that. C. Van Woodward has a moment in his classic Origins of the New South uh, where he's talking about the publicity about uh, poor white people in the South and how they were uh, often marketed to would-be investors from outside because they're, they're, they're not amenable to unionization and they'll accept low wages and so on. And part of the, the, uh, prospectus that they were selling to the outside people is here is a group of people they're they're out of history and out of time with an elizabethan flavor uh, and woodward really <laughs> made fun of that uh, but he said that when they when when people are selling the workforce that way they really didn't distinguish that much uh the color of their wares because the people who are buying don't care they care what they're going to pay people 
and uh, this is the asymmetry of it, that the people who are the engine of this kind of exploitation, uh, whatever they may say, they have their eyes on the prize. But we, who think we're trying to dismantle this, take our eyes off the prize all the time, and we allow ourselves to be robodoped. We allow ourselves to get carried off in conversations about racial identities this and racial disparities that. When you mentioned racial disparities, by the way, I, I just thought of one of Adolph Reed's articles where he quotes uh, an item that appeared in The Onion that uh, it, it just said, uh, these people are the most likely. Didn't have a predicate, just most likely. <laughs> it was a comment on the disparity arguments, and, and it was in that context that Adolf Reed wrote about it. But uh, I, I do think of it as a kind of rope-a-dope strategy, because you, you get people focused on something that's not really um, the Point. essential. Yeah, and then uh, you let the you let the so and sos. Uh, I'm trying to use parliamentary language. You let the so and sos off the hook. One example you use in your book about how racecraft makes people unable to that it that basically racism not only legitimates a class project but also obscures it, and one of and obscures people's ability to see that the class project that's underway. Um, you point to the reception of Richard Hernstein's and Charles Murray's infamous mm-hmm. book, yeah. The Bell Curve. Um, they're they're neo eugenicists, no doubt. They're racists, no doubt. The, you write that the focus, though, on their their racism at the exclusion of all else obscured the fact that they were making a that their overall argument was really about the degeneracy of poor people as a whole and that was missed by mainstream critics yeah they were justifying class inequality and uh I, we just recently had another go around here at columbia because murray uh had been invited to speak and uh, and I think most of the uh, students who who wanted to agit good-hearted students who wanted to agitate against it, and the faculty supporting them, I doubt that very many of them had read the book. And uh, and certainly they they had no clue about the class dimension of it because all they knew was that they had heard forever he's a racist. That's and, how they marketed the book at. Uh, uh, Free press, I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that, that's the photogenic part of the argument. The part of the argument that's not photogenic is the part that says that working class white people are where they are because they're not very smart uh, and they're, they're uh, you know, they're backward. And that was the entire focus of Charles Murray's, I don't know if it's his latest book, but a more recent book, I think it's called Coming Apart. Yeah. He's basically yes. looking at I've these... Uh, reading that, yes. Degenerate white working class people of uh, Philadelphia. When the the uh, well-meaning progressives around here wanted to uh, agitate against it, that wasn't what they picked up. So here they are in in what they think of as a Trump moment, and with a perfect opportunity to draw attention to a, 
uh, a very explicit class project. And they let it slip because calling him a racist and talking about what he says about black people is more, uh, you know, it's going to generate uh, more favorable publicity from their standpoint. It's going to certainly get the choir on its feet. And they're not talking to anybody else. Their race project is one that someone like Hillary Clinton could condemn, but their class project is one that she she wouldn't and couldn't. No, yeah, she's all for it. I mean, that's what the Democratic Leadership Council was all about, and uh, you know, and in a sense, that's what Obama was all about. So that's why the uh, the uh, bankers who who came as, as, as close as possible to destroying this economy, were bailed out and uh, were not held to account for what they had done. You know, that wasn't part of the program. And uh, you can't really wonder why it is that the people who suffered in all that, who bought the subprime mortgages, and I'm talking about the white people, not just the black people, why they were sour that at, at the end of the day, they find we're we're here holding the can, and the people who did this uh, have not been held to account. And where do we go for? Yeah, and and where do we go for somebody who understands our situation? Well, you don't go to Hillary Clinton. And, and there was this uh, there was this persistent critique in certain quarters of the Hillary friendly liberal media, though that. Bernie's emphasis on on class politics necessarily meant that he wasn't paying enough attention to racial justice. Yeah, and yeah, I heard such that. And I such a liar, such a liar. I used I used to listen to that with pictures. I I have to confess, I don't have a television, but I do see a lot of the television images <laughs> online. Nevertheless, and I have to say that I heard those criticisms, and then I would see the films of uh, Sanders' rally, and there was always a healthy, well, I won't say always, but uh, there was often a healthy representation of the Black Lives Matter people there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the younger black people, and they may have been ardent Black Lives Matter enthusiasts, but they could see through Hillary Clinton you know, but well, the polls, the poll, the polls make it very clear that <clears throat> young people of 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 all sorts backed Bernie over yeah, Clinton. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, but, but it 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 reminds me though. I I did want to ask you one thing that I wondered reading your book is what role racial identification can have for black people fighting for freedom who've had these racial categories imposed on them if if blackness is a category imposed upon black people by racecraft and by racism is it possible for people to have a collective racial we in the fight against racism without falling into that trap of essentializing race and i'm thinking particularly of this at this time when so many young black people are mobilizing under the banner of black lives matter which has that racial category right in its first word. I'm not sure it's a racial category, although it, it certainly is a category uh, that draws attention to racism. And that confusion of race and racism is, is one of the, the things we try to 
highlight in racecraft. Uh, over the years, Americans of African descent have had numerous ways of referring to themselves as a people because they have been a people and they've been made a people by the the conditions that they have faced, whether they were those conditions were slavery or Jim Crow or segregation or disfranchisement, uh, job discrimination, uh, segregation uh, across the board in the military, housing, whatever it was. Uh, they faced common circumstances that made them see themselves, recognize themselves as a people. But every time they designated themselves as a people, that became a racial designation. Didn't matter. There were arguments. We make this point in racecraft. Uh, when, when colored as a, as a term was replaced by Negro and Negro was replaced by black. And every one of those was a way of defining a people. And every one of them, when it gets into the general vocabulary is a racial designation. And that, that, that I'm, that is part of my answer to your question, because when black lives matter, activists say Black Lives Matter, they're not making a racial statement. Uh, couching it that way, I have to say this, though, I'm uh, an older person, uh, and I have to say that the slogan, Black Lives Matter, disturbed me mainly because it seemed to me uh, too self-effacing, having to yeah. declare that Black Lives Matter. And, and making it official that that's something that needs to be declared is making too large a concession to the enemy. It reminded me, I was talking to Karen about this earlier today, it reminded me of uh, perhaps the most famous of Frederick Douglass's uh, orations, uh, his 4th of July address that he delivered, I believe, in, in Rochester, uh, yes. Yeah, in in uh, the mid 1850s, and uh, the way he he began was, I don't really know what you have brought me here to say, because he was asked to speak by abolitionists. I don't know what you want me to say. You don't need me. We're celebrating the the uh, anniversary of the birth of a republic, so you don't need me to tell you that slavery is wrong. I don't have to say that to Republicans. And you don't need me to tell you that the slaves are human beings because this, even the slave owners know that or they wouldn't have so many provisions in their, in their uh, legal codes that define acts committed by slaves as crimes. A mule can't commit a crime. A wagon can't commit a crime. So by defining acts by slaves as crimes, they're already saying, so he made a whole, it was a, it, if you haven't read it lately, read it again. He, he made, he built the whole rhetorical structure on the argument. I don't need to tell you people these things because you know them. You're Republicans and you're, you're abolitionists. So you know all these things. And I think about that when I think about young people having to say black lives matter. Do Americans have to say that other Americans, and for that matter, other human beings' lives matter? Isn't that where we're supposed to start? Not what we are 
out to achieve. That should be, we know it's, it hasn't been achieved, but isn't it our assumption about where we start? And to have to say black lives matter and then open yourself up to an enemy to try to trump that with an all lives matter, when in fact the slogan black lives matter always meant all lives matter. It was a way of saying, yes, ours too. But I don't like that they had to say ours too, as though there could be a question about whether ours matter because everybody's matters. Uh, and it, it seems discuss- like the two of the two of you are okay. would maybe prefer freedom now or something of that yes. sort. Yes. Yeah, although I don't think either of us is criticizing the young people who did that because they no. they responded <laughs> to a moment and they responded to a moment in which much of this history has been lost. The, the, including freedom now, but including Frederick Douglass and so on. So they're having to build the world anew. And it, it is some kind of commentary on us that we require our young people to build the world anew from scratch, that they don't have something to build on. And that's because of a, a long demobilization, uh, a purging, a persecution, and so on, that left us and them without a political heritage on which to build. So everybody has to start again from the beginning. And, uh, you know, each time we do that, we, we have uh, lost momentum and we've lost ground. And I, there may not be any alternative to doing it. You can't uh, fabricate a historical knowledge that isn't there. But having to operate without that historical knowledge means that you're operating with one hand tied behind your back. So I'm delighted that we're having an opportunity to remind people that in 1963, the slogan was jobs and freedom. And uh, it, it, in other words, everybody understood how one thing was related to the others. And now I'm not sure people do because we, we I'm not including myself, but I am charitably saying we believe in this whiteness. Uh, metaphysics, uh, and are even the most conservative of the civil rights leadership of the fifties and sixties would be shaking their heads at that, and and thinking of us as benighted children who didn't know that much. Well, perhaps we should prepare some radio casts of those speeches. To do that heritage out and abroad to a broad argument, our audience, in order to enrich the arguments people are trying to make as they attempt to resist and formulate what resistance should should be made up of. Yeah, by the way, this is is going going back a paragraph, but I, I meant to point this out and I didn't, talking about Black Lives Matter. I was uh, reminding Karen earlier this morning that when that young white man, uh, whose name I now can't remember, uh, was shot in South Carolina, remember that? I think his first in name the pot, was Jason. The, the marijuana bust where he drove yes. away, tried to drive away and they just shot him to death. But the point is, so- Seneca, South Carolina, I think, but certainly it was in South Carolina, 
uh, a young white man, and he was killed by the police. And I was reminding Karen earlier today that the only way that episode was publicized was that some of the Black Lives Matter people publicized it. They put it on Twitter, and then it was picked up by some of the uh, news media who follow such things. But uh, that was how it came to to, uh, public knowledge. So, and I'm saying that in order to illustrate that Black Lives Matter always meant all lives matter. It's just that the young people who were saying that uh, thought that others needed to be told our lives too. But they did not forget that all lives matter. They didn't get very far because, as it happens, the white neighbors of the family whose whose son was killed uh, didn't stand up for the family. I think it, they couldn't figure out where was a safe place to put their feet in what looked like quicksand because they probably assumed that uh, these confrontations with the police are always confrontations in which the police are the good guys and whoever's on the other side is the bad guy. And uh, racecraft would allow them to make that assumption comfortably when the person on the other side was black. But now here's a white person that they know, small town, South Carolina. And they can't bring themselves to uh, call this what it is because uh, it's out of the pattern and they don't have a way to understand that. If all lives matter were a serious uh, declaration rather than a way of just twitting Black Lives Matter people, then the All Lives Matter people would have jumped on that, but they didn't, did they? They couldn't see it either. Because, because how, fact, how, could they, how could they make sense of this white young man being treated like what they thought was what black young men deserved? Exactly. And so they don't mean it when they say All Lives Matter. Yeah, well, this is the function of the stuff I was talking about earlier. What the, He must have done something to deserve this. That's yeah. the thing. And it's not his black color, but it's something. But it better always rests on the, uh, yeah. the Negro-like. Whatever he did must have been Negro-like to have that consequence. But I'd love to walk through and question people and why, ask them why they think this all happened. You know, their own yeah. opinion. The way that racism functions to legitimate policies that harm working class people as a whole by sort of spectacularly harming black people and sometimes and often Hispanic people more. So you have mass incarceration, which justifies itself by disproportionately locking up so many black people, but also locks up an extraordinary number of white people. The same with welfare reform. Because welfare is was uh, was disproportionately received by black mothers, that allowed the Clinton administration and congressional Republicans to eliminate welfare for all mothers. Yeah. Well, and you can go back further, you can go back further to disfranchisement in uh, the South in uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, 
which was supposed to be the disfranchisement of Afro-Americans, but in fact it ended up disfranchising large numbers of white people and uh, was the, the beginning of the low uh, voter turnout that continues to be part of American um, political society to this day. And uh, the difference, though, between that time and our moment today is that the white people who became the targets were not fooled by it. They knew what was going on. Today, Come back to what Sorry. Today it may be that uh, people aren't aware they, they, it can be successfully hidden that this weapon that appears to be wielded against black people is being wielded against you as well. That's sort of like the, the, the bad news side of that equation. But in your book, you write that the debacle of the bankers, talking about the financial crisis, mm-hmm. rubbed the gloss from the justifications for inequality that yeah. prevailed since the 1980s. The welfare mother can no longer stand for what is not right with America. And so my question is, in terms of all these horrible things that have happened have been justified via via racism. And obviously with Trump in office, racism is very much still a real core part of elite class warfare in this country. But since 2008, since the crisis shook, and since we've seen Occupy, the Bernie Sanders campaign, Black Lives Matter, do you see some hope in people thinking, getting that critical distance from racecraft um, that you've been talking about and being able to take collective action against the system that's done so many, so much harm in this country and all over the world? Well, we had in mind uh, putting some ammunition in the hands of people who are trying to fight the late, most recent wave of capitalist oppression here because we had recognized how useful the race card had been, and especially because uh, we could see the ramping up of all the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, obsolete racial ideas in the 1980s, such as the races have different blood and the Red Cross is, is uh, putting that around. So we said one of the things to do is to get this, what we're, these, this information we have out and find other ways to get it out because we need uh, to be able to hear each other as Americans and not this nonsense, excuse me, about racial identities today. I say, excuse yeah. me, because <laughs> that's my opinion. I have it strongly. I don't want to impress anybody who thinks that it's very good to have a high self-esteem in this society, too. But it's just that it's a barrier that um, racecraft provides an explanation for what happens bad to black people. And, and it's, uh, what do you call it, a, a, a barber, that rope for people who might otherwise be able to put their fist into the people who are exploiting their jobs abroad. So Yeah, but I think part of the present moment, too, is that... Uh We're seeing a a program, even if it has been slowed down, a program on the part of the right-wing 
Republicans and and the Trump people who aren't always. I mean, they're they're uh, an ox team, not always pulling in the same direction, but they they have a good. <laughs> That's bit a generous in description. <laughs> yeah, they they they, uh, they do have in common uh, a class program, even if they sometimes are representing different parts of the class that uh, is on top, and uh, and what we need to keep our eyes on is that in many ways they're building momentum because they are changing the nature of the game. Uh, they don't expect, for example, to have to pay for, uh, for what they're going to do to uh, a good number of white working people as well as every other kind of working people if they get this program through because simultaneously they're working on what I call curating the electorate. They're working on ways to uh, prevent people from voting or to prevent people's votes from counting. And because uh, billionaires, I mean, it, it, it's easier to buy a state legislature than to buy the U.S. Congress, but these people can afford to do both. And, uh, and so they are establishing a, a kind of momentum that is quite frightening by which they hope to insulate themselves from uh, being punished by the people they injure. Uh, they may not imagine that there's much that black people can do about it. They expect that black lot. people will be punished for what they have, for their injury. You know, the you black know, blame but, will be shifted into stories about welfare again. The wel yeah. welfare mother stories came back in when this process began in the 80s. Yeah, but I think, uh, as is true of, of many uh, classes with overweening uh, projects of power, uh, they don't really see their, their opponents clearly. Uh, mm -hmm. So they may not always be aware of what they're unleashing. And, and this frightens me as much as anything, because they, while they're confident that they can handle anything that's going to uh, occur because of, of the, the racism, the homophobia, all the other ways that they provide fuel for anybody who wants to blow up the social structure, and they're pretty sure that they can insulate themselves from that. But I don't think they really envision what it will be if they truly unleash uh, a white population that is both angry and hopeless. Uh, if they imagine that it will all be directed against scapegoats, maybe that's because they don't know what happens when all the holds are barred. I mean, when no holds are barred and all limits are off. So I'm not sure they really understand the fire that they're playing with. And where the where the openings and challenges for the left in this moment of incredible flux and uncertainty? Well, I don't know if it's an opening because I think uh, too many people, well, maybe I shouldn't say the left because I, maybe I'm talking about people who may call themselves the left, but they really aren't. Uh, but I think they're, they're too progressives. That's the, the terminology they often use. Too many of them uh, are not thinking about these things in class terms. And so what opening is there for them if their only answer 
to a, a general souring of working people with good reason, if their only answer is to say, well, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, black people and racism, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, Hispanics, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, gay marriage, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, you know, they, they have a, a map with, with all the different pieces, and it, it, it almost seems as though they're not aware that their map comes from uh, an era that the enemy has superseded. It, it, it's just not working the same way. I watch the Democrats in Congress, and there's something almost laughable about watching Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer and all that group when they lumber into action with something that sounds, to use an expression our parents used to use, a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, in other words, an opening depends on somebody capable of spotting it and capable of, of exploiting it. That it depends was very short on an organization. Huh? Don't you think? Yeah. Well, yes, in a, in a way, but then I think sometimes uh, the, the Bernie Sanders people are also the progressives uh, who are sensitive to the coup. Well, you you know, you, you didn't uh, talk enough about what was specific to black people or what was... Uh, yeah, this is... You know, and then they feel defensive about it, and then they think, well, maybe we ought to do a little of that. It's deadly. I, to me, what most stood out about the Sanders phenomenon was that Sanders actually found a way to talk about the overall inequality and injustice without trying to speak to individually designated portions of the of the population as though they were separate entities. And uh, I don't want to lose that. That that was a grace that this country was offered without deserving it. And uh, in a sense, it was thrown away. And the Democrats, I blame mainly for it because they decided that they would rather uh, keep their apparatus and the apparatchiks who benefit by it uh, because they were threatened by someone who was actually able to leapfrog their... And incorruptible. Yeah, and uh, so I, they they uh, they helped to throw away a grace that we were given, and what we got instead is Donald Trump and his people. But his people, uh, uh, and I don't mean just literally his people around him, but the, the billionaires who've come into their own, uh, they they have a way of multiplying their power so that it, it keeps going up exponentially. And that's what, after a certain point, that's what having that level of money, that level of control over the apparatus uh, is going to do. It goes back to something uh, Thomas Jefferson warned about when he was talking about uh, the constitution of the state of Virginia and the need to guard against corruption and not allow overweening power anywhere. And uh, and he said, uh, the trouble with allowing this thing to get out of hand, he said, we need to nip it in the bud before we have uh, so many people holding so much power that we can't anymore. And he, he said, uh, the trouble is that 
the objects of this kind of power are also the engines of it. With men, we will get money. With money, we will get men. <laughs> it turns around in a, uh, an expanding uh, circle so that uh, it, it, it gets bigger as it goes along. It feeds on what it is seeking. And I, you know, I know that, that people will poo-poo Thomas Jefferson when I talk uh, to my students about him. Uh, they're going to be remembering only. Yeah, he was a slaveholder. Yeah, he, he did all he could to keep the Haitian Revolution influence from spreading uh, and all of those things. But uh, he also, and, and his fellow slaveholder, James Madison, understood something about how uh, how power works. And uh, while we're dismissing the other things that they bequeathed us, we need to remember a few of those that we have forgotten. And uh, I remember thinking when, when Ronald Reagan was elected, I ran into, I was at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, and I ran into Henry Fairley, who was a, for my mind, big mouth conservative Brit who came over, worked, uh, wrote for the Washington Post, and you know, here he is telling Americans how we ought to organize our societies. So I didn't, I didn't, he, he got on my nerves, but I ran into him at the Wilson Center shortly after Reagan was elected, and I said to him, uh, well, at this moment, there's only one politician I have any faith in, and that's James Madison, because I hope he made this machinery sufficiently unworkable that these guys can't really do what they want to do. <laughs> Well, apparently it wasn't unworkable enough. It, it, it may not, Reagan may not have been able to do everything he wanted to do or those who came after him, but the machinery has not been unworkable enough to stop this onslaught. And that may be because we allowed it to build up such a head of steam that it takes more to stop it now. And uh, and we have the the all the historical precedents tell us how deadly the bourgeoisie is if it ever considers that its uh, it, its back is against the wall. I, I remember somebody making a warning like that back in I, I think it was Eric Hobsbawm after the coup in Chile saying, well, one thing this teaches us is how bloodthirsty the bourgeoisie is. And we haven't seen it yet in this country. We've seen blood, and we've seen bloodthirst, but we don't know how bloodthirsty they can become. If we even look like uh, uh, mounting an effective opposition, but that's what we have to do. We might as well be ready for the fact, though, that it's not going to be a Sunday school picnic. You said that um, Sanders represented unearned grace, and I think the take-home message might be that uh, we can only be saved by by works and not not grace. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Even if our work is the work of accepting grace. (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. Work work is... Uh, what's required, but it has to be work informed by knowledge and understanding. And I think that's where you come in. Barbara and Karen Fields, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, we enjoyed it, 
and uh, Every I'm looking of forward it. to talking to you again sometime. Barbara Fields and Karen Fields are, amongst many other things, the co-authors of Racecraft from Verso Books. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said as he was pointing out that Hitler was a big fan of American eugenics and of American immigration law, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week usually two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews somehow affect iTunes secretive algorithms and help introduce us to new listeners. We gotta work the system that we have at the moment until we transform it. And if you haven't done so yet, please go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Five bucks a month is a huge help.